If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to, uh, to open it to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Uh, this morning we will look at verses 14 through 29. The sermon this morning is entitled, uh, The Almost and the Real Deal. The Almost and the Real Deal. Uh, this morning I want to show you, contrasted in this particular text, uh, two individuals or two groups. Uh, the almost disciple and then the real deal disciple. Uh, I want to show you this morning that, uh, that even when Jesus walked the earth, there were people who almost got it. And then there were people who really did. They fully got it. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I remember one year for Christmas, it was when Dustbusters first came out. You all know what a Dustbuster is? Uh, Dustbusters, when they first came out, were like you know, the height of technology, you know, it was, there were no, you know, LCDs, LEDs, plasmas, any of that. There was dust busters, all right? For those of you who weren't alive then, a dust buster was a small handheld vacuum cleaner that kept you from having to get the large vacuum cleaner out, okay? That's what it was. You could use it in your car, you could use it on the, on the fireplace, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and it was, it was the coolest thing. Aren't you glad you live now, right? But I remember when it came out, the Dust Buster probably cost, I don't remember what they cost, they probably cost all of about $19.95 or maybe $29.95, something like that at the most. I mean, it was, you know, it was good stuff. My dad, though, my dad wanted a Dust Buster because he got tired of, of using that little broom and, you know, at the, at the hearth, you know, and sweeping that stuff up and, and uh, you know, you never get it all off the bricks. You never get that thing, that broom to hang up right. Anybody else have trouble with the broom at the, at the fireplace, always falls over and all that kind of stuff. Dad wanted a dust buster. But Dad didn't want to spend the $19.95 to buy the real dust buster. So Dad went to TGNY. TGNY, you probably didn't have TGNY, but we had TGNY. TGNY, did y'all have TGNY? TGNY was sort of like Walmart before Walmart. It was like a, a knockoff Walmart, all right? And so in TGNY, Dad went in and he saw they had these Dustbusters, only they weren't the real dustbusters. They were like $14.95. Instead of $19.95, $14.95. Had to drive probably five dollars worth of gas to get to TGNY, but he was gonna get the not real dustbuster. Uh, it was probably like the dust blower or something. It, it was it was not the real thing. He bought it. I think he I think he actually like you know wrapped it up and then you know we gave it to him for Christmas or something. You know, it was it was one of those deals. He opens it, he, he charges it, does what he's supposed to do with it, and he goes to vacuum up the stuff at the hearth, pushes the button, and mm, nothing. And we, we got a dud. So he packs it back up in the box, drives the $5 worth of gas back to TG&Y, takes it back, they give him another one. There is a stack of dust blowers, knock-off dustbusters in the middle of the store. So they pick him out another one. He takes it home. We charge it. He get, goes to the hearth. Mm. Third time, back to TGNY. They give him another one. We come home. Mm. We realized after that that it was time to get our money back and go and buy the real deal dustbuster. Taught me a lesson then. I didn't really learn the lesson, I guess, until later on, but it stuck with me that sometimes it matters to get the real deal. Sometimes you want the name brand. Now, that's not true with everything, but in that particular case, it was true. 
Uh, those were quickly removed from the shelves at TGNY, and uh, we haven't seen them since. Uh, I did a little research on the internet looking for, for fakes versus the real deal, and there's all kinds, all kinds of things out there. Uh, I wish I could have brought a picture of it for you, but uh, apparently there's, there's a big market for fake action figures, not the real deal. And uh, one of them, my favorite, was instead of Superman, it was Special Man. That's, you know, in that case, it kind of matters that it's the real deal, you know. Well, this morning, as we look at this text, when it comes to the issue of discipleship, it matters as well. It matters that we want to be the real deal. We don't want to be the almost. We want to be the real deal. So this morning, I'm hoping to at least show you the almost And then hopefully tonight I will finish showing you the real deal. But let's look at this text this morning, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And let me just take a time out there and explain this to you. Herod is not the King Herod that we see in, uh, in the day when Jesus was born. This is a relative. This is a son uh, or a grandson, but this is not the King Herod. No longer is he king. He's not even a king. He is a tetrarch. A tetrarch, when the Romans came in and took the territory, they would divide an area into fourths. And a tetrarch was a ruler over one-fourth. So he no longer has a full kingdom. Now he has a quarter of a kingdom. And it says here that he had had John imprisoned, For the sake of Herodias. Herodias uh, was his wife, used to be his brother's wife, until Herod got tired of his wife, divorced her, and then seduced his brother's wife to come and marry him. Uh, this This was not a good man. This was not a nice man at all. But, uh, but here he steals his brother's wife, and, uh, and now he has John the Baptist imprisoned for her sake. Let's pick it up there. In uh, verse 18, Uh, let me read it again. Uh, For John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Herodias didn't like it that John the Baptist was telling her new husband that what he had done was sin. She wanted to kill him. She had a grudge against him and, uh, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Herodias, her own daughter, this is now... Herod's own stepdaughter. At Herod's birthday, Herod had his own stepdaughter come in and dance very provocatively, wearing probably nothing to entertain him 
and his birthday dinner guests. She came in and she pleased his, him and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And we've already said he doesn't really have a kingdom. He has a fourth of a kingdom. And so if he were to give away half of a fourth of a kingdom, what would that be? Y'all are so good at math. But really, he wasn't promising to give her up to the, an eighth of the kingdom. It was an expression. In the same way that you and I would say, I'll bet you a million dollars. Now, none of us has a million dollars probably to, to, uh, to pay off that bet. It's an expression. He was saying, I'll give you a million dollars is what he's saying here. Uh, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I want to show you this morning that there are two groups here. There are two individuals. It applies, it goes further, and it, it points out that there are two groups. In every church, there are these two groups. Every church, there are these two groups. There's the almost disciple, and then there's the real deal. Let me give you three things this morning about the almost disciple. Number one, the almost disciple cares about pleasing people more than pleasing God. Look at it there in verses 17 to 18. John, or, or Herod, says, this, this Jesus who I'm hearing about must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. He cared more about pleasing Herodias than he did about the one that obviously John the Baptist represented. He, he knew there was something about John the Baptist that was real, but yet he cared more about pleasing his own wife than he did about pleasing God. He had John the Baptist bound and put in prison. Herodias wanted to kill him, but she couldn't because Herod kept him safe. He had him put in prison not because he was convinced that he was wrong. In fact, there was something that perplexed Herod to listen to John the Baptist. He knew. He, he looked at him and saw, this is a righteous man. This is a holy man. He was fearful of letting his wife execute him. He didn't have him put in prison because he was convinced he was wrong or because he thought he was guilty, but he had John the Baptist put in prison for the sake of his wife. His wife manipulated him into having John the Baptist arrested and thrown into prison. I, I couldn't help when I read this, and I began to think about the almost disciple. The reason I call Herod the almost disciple is because he listened to John the Baptist on a regular basis. He listened to John the Baptist preach, repent. He listened to John the Baptist say, there is one who is coming after me of whom I'm not 
worthy to even untie his sandals. He listened to all of that, yet he never never came to faith in the one that John talked about. I couldn't help but think that as Herod here listened to John the Baptist, yet had him thrown into prison for the sake of his wife, I couldn't help but to think about the almost disciples that sit in congregations every week. The ones who care more about pleasing the people around them than pleasing God. The ones who care more about pleasing their family or their friends or their co-workers than they do about pleasing God. The ones who care more about what everyone thinks of them than what those people think of their God. I preach a sermon every week and churches are filled, they fill this land, they dot the landscape all over the place. And they preach the gospel every week. They extend the invitation to come to Christ. And I think there are probably individuals in those congregations as well as this one. Every single week, there's individuals who sit and say, I I can't, I I can't do that. What will they think of me? They sit and they say, I don't know the man like Peter did. They sit in silence and let everything else go by, and they care more about being accepted and pleasing the people around them than they do about pleasing God, becoming acceptable to God. There are people that go to work every week and go in and, and participate in the conversation and, and live the life that everyone else lives rather than standing out and being salt and light because they care more about fitting in and pleasing people. There are students who deny God every single day at school so that they will be accepted and fit in. And Herod here gives us a picture of an almost disciple. The almost disciple cares more about pleasing people than he does about pleasing God. It's one thing for it to only to stay on an individual level where one person says, I, I don't know the man, I'm not going to stand up, I'm not going to step out and be identified for Christ. It's another thing when a church is filled with almost disciples. When they feed off one, of, one another. When, when a church is filled with almost disciples, and I think there are churches all over the place that are filled with almost disciples, that are stuck in tradition and dying year by year because their objective is pleasing people at the expense of pleasing God. I wrote that out very specifically because I want you to get it. I want you to hear it again. There are churches filled with almost disciples that are stuck in tradition and dying year by year because their objective is pleasing people at the expense of pleasing God. We cannot, hear me on this, we cannot do church to make each other happy. We must do church because He is the one that we desire to please more than anybody else. We must stand in this place and say, you know what? It's not about my preference. It's not about what I want. It's about what He wants. I would ask you the question, where do we find this idea That the church exists to make me happy. It's not in Scripture. 
You don't find it anywhere in Scripture. Scripture is not there. The church is not there to make you happy. But I think we get this idea that the church is there to make people happy from churches that care more about numbers and the condition of their kingdom than they do about the condition of his kingdom. And they'll do whatever it takes to get people in the door if it means, you know, the pastor bungee jumping into the service, you know, and, and, uh, and, and whatever, whatever it takes. I should have prepared that illustration a little better because uh, some of you right now are saying, I like to see that, you know? <laughs> we get the idea that, that church exists to make me happy from churches that water down the gospel, dilute the gospel, and preach another gospel so that they can get people in the door. Let me tell you something. You won't hear this from a lot of pastors. Our objective here is not to be a big church. Our objective here is to be a pleasing church. A pleasing church that is accepted by God because of Christ. And we so own that. We so know that we have no other claim to come before God other than Jesus Christ and Him alone. That it puts aside our petty preferences. And it causes us to humble ourselves and say, this is not about me. This is only about Him. You are holy. Oh, so holy. We also get this idea that the church exists to please me and make me happy from pastors. From pastors who preach a gospel other than the true gospel. I wrote it down this way. From pastors that preach God off His throne to put you and I on it. We have pastors all over the televisions and all over the churches across America that are preaching that it's all about you. And that God exists to make you prosperous. And He wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Then what about John the Baptist? John the Baptist, Jesus said he was the greatest prophet. He was the one that came preparing the way for the Son of God. But he lost his head. Simply for holding the standard of God high, he lost his head. We cannot preach God off his throne. God will not stand for it. You and I have no business on the throne. Our business is around the throne. If the Bible is our authority, then that should settle it. Secondly, the almost disciple not only cares more about pleasing people than pleasing God, but the almost disciple knows what he is hearing is true, but does nothing with it. Verses 19 and 20, this is a a sad, sad situation. And Herodias had a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Here is Herod, the ruler of a quarter of the country. Powerful man, could have, could have brought 
an army together in an instant. And the Bible here tells us that Herod was afraid of John. Really? The one who walked out of the wilderness? The one who dressed in camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey? He feared him. He feared him because he had become very popular with the people. The Bible tells us back in chapter 1 of Mark, in verse 5, that all the people in the land were going out to John the Baptist to be baptized. He had become extremely popular, and John feared him because of the position that God had elevated him into. See, when God elevates a person, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. God's going to do what God's going to do regardless. He feared him, it says. That's, that's a ridiculous statement. He was afraid of him. He was afraid of him not only because of the people's reaction, but I think he was afraid that there might be some sort of divine retribution. If he let his wife kill John the Baptist, then he was afraid that God himself might punish him. You see, somehow Herod knew when he watched John the Baptist that this was a holy man, that this was a righteous man. He knew there was something authentic about this. And albeit superstitious, his idea of God, whatever that was, he understood that it was real. And he was afraid to touch God's anointed. He knew that John was a righteous and holy man. His life backed up what he said. The saddest part of the whole thing, though, is this. When he heard him, it's in verse 20, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I think there are people that sit in church services, sit through sermons, sit through invitations, sit through worship every single week, and they're perplexed when they hear the Word of God. And word perplexed, I think what it means is it meant that he was convicted. That when John the Baptist told him, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife, I think within himself, for some reason, he knew, that's right. It's not right for me to have my brother's wife. He was perplexed. It says, but he heard him gladly. He kept wanting John to come back. Is he simply a glutton for punishment? Or is he like so many that sit through the conviction of the Holy Spirit when the Word of God is preached, yet do nothing with it. And they keep coming back to hear it gladly week after week. You see, the almost disciple hears the Word of God gladly, but does nothing with it. He knows what he's hearing is true, but he does nothing with it. They are forever listening, but never doing James 1, through 25 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you're only listening but never doing, you're deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see the contrast? The one who simply listens but never does 
is a de- he's deceived. He's deceiving himself. But the one who listens as well as applies does what he finds in the perfect law of liberty. The law was not complete until Christ came. When Christ came, the law that could only show us our guilt became the law of liberty because he was the completer of the law. He who hears and does is a blessing. James there points out, he gives the illustration. It's it's a pretty good illustration. He says, the one who simply hears but never does anything with it is like a man who gets up in in the morning and gets ready for the work day and goes to the bathroom and looks in the mirror and sees his hair all messed up, if he's got any hair left, and, and he, sees, he sees stuff on his face, sees he needs to shave. You know, he's, just, he's a wreck, but he looks in the mirror, sees it all, but ignores it all and says, looking good. And he goes out the door and he heads to work. And the people at work that are around him, like, this guy needs some help, you know. And they start taking up money together to buy this guy a mirror. You know, he, they give him the mirror, and he says, oh, I've got a mirror. You've got a mirror, and you look the way you do? Well, yeah. He misses the point of the mirror. The point of the mirror is to show him what needs to change. And the point of the Word of God, the reason I stand and preach the Word of God, the reason your, your Bible study leaders teach you the Word of God every week, the reason you should, as a believer, sit down with the Word of God on a regular basis is to look intently into the mirror of God's Word and let it show you the things that are unlike Christ. Not so that you could say, wow, I never realized that, and go out and never do anything with it, but so that you could take it and say, God means for me to look that way. And through the power of the Spirit of God that lives inside of me, I will make the changes that need to take place. You see, we, we have preached, we come to God, we are saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we should preach that. But that's where we've stopped. We've stopped at justification, where we are made declared innocent before God. And we have forgotten that God's left us in the world. We are saved, but He's left us in the world. And while we're still here, He's in process of conforming us to the image of Christ. It's what Romans 8.29 means when it says, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. There's another place in Scripture where He says, you work out your own salvation while I work in you. And what he's saying is, is that this, from the point of justification, you do nothing to earn your right standing before God. Nothing. It's me and me alone. But from that point forward, in the conforming yourself to Christ, it will be you putting forth the effort with the help of God, through the power of God, day by day, disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness to become like Christ. You and I should take heart that God loves us enough to not leave us where we are. We must also be doers. The the almost disciple is one who knows what he's hearing is true but does nothing with it. There are people that walk out of these doors every single week and they might as well have not sat through it. 
because they never consider. That's why at the end of the service, that's why we've added the time of reflection. And some of you, you know, that was new to you. The time of reflection is for you to say, based on what I've heard from the Word of God, what does this require of me? The almost disciple knows what he's hearing is true, but does nothing with it. Third is this. The last one is this. The almost disciple is haunted by his squandered opportunities. Verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He began to hear the name of Jesus as the disciples went and had authority over the demons and, and healed people of their sickness. As he went, as they went and did those things, the name of Jesus grew. His fame grew. And as Herod hears that, he becomes haunted that this is not just Jesus. This is John the Baptist, raised from the dead, coming back to haunt me. That's what he means there. This is John the Baptist, whom I beheaded, raised from the dead. Look at verses 21 through 28. In that section, an opportunity came, and Herod on his birthday gives this banquet, has his stepdaughter come in, dance for all these governing officials. She dances in such a way that it's provocative, that it works him into such a frenzy that he offers her whatever she wants. She asks for the head of John the Baptist. He never dreamed she would ask for that. But she did. And he had made an oath. Not only had he made an oath, which was binding, but he had said it in front of all these guys. Guys have something within them that if you say something, you want to be able to back it up. I didn't talk a lot of trash yesterday at the the skeet shoot. I didn't walk out there saying, oh, guys, I got this one. Y'all just need to all quit because I'm the best. Because I knew couldn't back that up, you know. I was lucky to, to clip one, you know, when it went by. But there's something in guys that you talk and then you want to be able to back it up. And that's what goes on here with Herod. He doesn't want to go back on his word, and he can't because of his oath. He doesn't want to be embarrassed, and so he says, go, go get the head of John the Baptist. He sends the executioner. The executioner pulls John the Baptist out of his cell, takes him to the chopping block, cuts John's head off, puts it on a platter, and brings it to the daughter of Herodias. How many times must he have thought, why? 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 All those times that I was perplexed, why didn't I heed what he was asking me to do. How many times must he have been awoken in the night by the same nightmare, hoping that it was all simply a dream? There's coming a day when a lot of people will wake up to another nightmare. Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, 
who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's coming a day when I believe there will be many, many churchgoers, many church members who will wake up to that nightmare, thinking that because they have spent years filling a seat, putting something in the plate, and singing in the choir, serving as a teacher, greeting people at the door, working with the children, volunteering for the fall festival, whatever. There will be many who will wake up one day to hear those haunting words, depart from me for I never knew you. The almost disciple is haunted by his squandered opportunities. Church, I want to be exactly crystal clear on this. We are not accepted by God by what we do. We're not accepted by God by coming and filling a chair. We're not accepted by perfect attendance, for Bible study attendance. We're not accepted by teaching. We're not accepted by singing. We're not accepted by serving. We're not accepted by any of that. There is one way that we are accepted by God, and it is by placing your faith completely in Jesus alone, repenting of your sin, turning away from your sin, from your, your life of doing things your way, your rebellion against God, your breaking of His laws, turning away from that and turning to Christ and saying, Jesus, I've done a lot of things, but I'm not sure that I have ever come to know You. Jesus stepped out of heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life without sin in any of it. You were born into sin. You have chosen many, many times over to sin. Who deserves God's wrath? You do. I do. Certainly not Jesus. Jesus has never done anything wrong. Jesus has never broken any of God's law. He doesn't deserve the chastisement of God. You and I do. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, came to the end of his life, and went to the cross. And the agony was not in simply the nails or the spear or the crown of thorns. The agony was when God poured all of his chastisement or wrath out on Jesus, his own son, so that he wouldn't have to on you. Today, you have an opportunity today to say yes to the gospel, to say yes to the fact that Jesus is your only hope, to quit trying to fill your life with all sorts of empty things but to say God is the only thing that I need. He is, He is my only hope. And today I'm asking you, 
Don't squander this opportunity. Don't be perplexed, but do nothing with it. Today, call on Him. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, if that's you and you need to do that, regardless of how many times you've sat in this service, then today, after our time of reflection, I will be right up here and I would love to talk with you. I'd love to help you today become known by Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, that, um, that you would be pleased, Lord, with, with, with our lives. And God, the only way that will happen is when we are seen in your Son. And God, this morning there's probably people scattered throughout this room who are almost disciples. God, this morning I pray, Lord, that you would keep them from caring more about pleasing people than pleasing you. God, I pray today, God, that you would keep them from sitting apathetically in their seats. God, you would show them the truth. God, that today they would act on the truth and find that the truth really will set them free. God, I pray for the people across this room that today will be the end of their squandered opportunities. But today, they would take the greatest opportunity that they've ever had before them, and they would say, yes. They would cast themselves on you, and your mercy, and place their faith in Jesus alone to make them right before you. God, I pray, God, that you would do that. Lord, I pray for your kingdom to come. God, I pray today that you would build your church. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.